Please do turn to Genesis 14 if you've got a Bible with you. As Lee said, we are uh, at the end of our series, Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, and it's a joy to unpack this passage today. My name's Brogan. If you don't know me, I'm one of the, uh, one of the clergy team here. I'm married to Beth and uh, our little daughter's uh, 11 months, finally started sleeping through the night. Praise the Lord. That's a thing I'm giving thanks to God for. Um, and, uh, and it's a joy to be unpacking Genesis 14. We've looked at this series, how Jesus is promised in the Old Testament. Uh, Lee took us through Isaiah 53, looking at these explicit promises that tell of the King that's coming, King Jesus. And then last week, we looked at Joshua 5 with Ben and looked at this angel of the Lord figure, this presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. But church, I want to put the cat among the pigeons this morning and say most of the Old Testament is not that. Most of the Old Testament is not an explicit promise that there will one day be this king who will do this thing. Most of the Old Testament is not following the angel of the Lord explicitly. Most of the Old Testament is historical narratives about people's lives in which they don't say something that's prophetic necessarily and they don't meet with the angel of the Lord. How are we then to read those passages? Are we just clutching at straws claiming Jesus is there when he isn't? With that in mind, I'd like us to turn to Genesis 14. Genesis 14, reading from verse 17 through to verse 20. After Abram returned from defeating Kedolaumah and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abraham saying, blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So how does that rather provocative question strike you? A king returning from battle, meeting a priest king and another king and a meal. Where is Jesus in this? Today, we are exploring Jesus patterned. We're exploring an area of theology known as typology. Nick promised you some big words. Here they come. Can we all say typology together? I don't know what you think about when you think about the word type. Um, For me, the first thing that comes to mind is that every so often, a friend of mine will get a a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and I will think, I I really didn't think that they were his type. I don't know if you have the same experience. And what we mean by that is that we have, I was not looking at anyone in particular there. Whoa, that's dangerous. Um, And what we mean by that is this person does not fit the pattern that came before. Previously, they dated people who looked a certain way or thought a certain way or, or acted a certain way. And this person doesn't fit that pattern. They're not their type. And we're talking about a similar idea of 
patterns here throughout the Bible. The word type comes from the Greek verb topto, meaning I press down or I, or I hit down. And in ancient literature, it's the image of making a coin. Does anyone have any coins on them? Anyone got any coins on them? Literally anyone. Just, just one coin as a sermon illustration. Could you hold it up if you do? Fantastic. Keith's got some there. Fantastic. Anyone else? Yeah, Thomas at the back. Brilliant. Now, if I were to do a walking tour of church, I would see lots and lots of pictures of probably Her Majesty the Queen. Maybe His Majesty the King, but probably Her Majesty the Queen. Because all of these are types of the queen, right? They are, uh, someone has pressed down or hit down a piece of metal to make a figure. But if I were to walk away all the way around the church, I would get a picture of what she looks like. But it's not the real thing. It's not her majesty. It's not even a colour picture of her. But it might lead me to recognise that this is her. And if anyone had the privilege um, in, the, in the last, gosh, 90 years of meeting Her Majesty, you would have recognised it was her. Obviously, we're not going to meet her in person. She's caught up with much better things, worshipping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But these are figures or types. I'm going to put that there so I don't knock it off. These are figures or types of a person. And the Old Testament works a lot like that. There are figures or types, like little coins, so that we know what the true person is when we meet him in the Gospels. That's what we're talking about this morning with typology. And we'll unpack it a little bit more. Let me show you what I mean from Genesis 14. Now, the background to this passage is that Abram has been chosen by God to be the first ancestor of all of his people on earth. He is the man who, uniquely in his generation, God has revealed himself to. And his nephew, this guy called Lot, has been captured by a, an evil king called King Kedolauma and some other people. And it's not just Lot, but it's an, entire, um, it's an entire countryside living around the city of Sodom. And Abram, hearing that his nephew has been captured, has none of that. And he says, I'm, I'm going after them. And so he leads a, a brave group of 318 men against the entire army of a king. And as we uh, learn in verse 20, God Most High delivers, delivers into Abram's hand all of these men, who, women and children who had been carried off. It's a remarkable victory. And now we meet Abram as he returns, triumphant. And the king of Sodom comes out to meet him. And then we meet another mysterious figure called King Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And he is a king and a priest. Now, so far, this is just a pretty standard Old Testament narrative. There's, you know, a king, there's a priest, there's a battle, there's a victory. It's all standard stuff. But if we were a Jewish audience hearing this, there would be uproar at this point. There would be chairs thrown everywhere. Joel would be lying on the floor. Nick would be throwing a coat in the air. It would be absolute uproar because this isn't just a normal king or priest. 
This is a king or priest of God most high. Here's Abraham thinking he's the only person on earth that God has called to worship him, that he's going to found a nation. Just two chapters earlier in chapter 12, he says, God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless everyone through you. And yet here is another priest and another king who's coming out, blessing him, receiving his worship in the name of God most high. This is scandalous. We should be amazed there should be uproar because what this means for the whole of the Old Testament is it disrupts the narrative. Let's look at priests. If you've read the rest of the Old Testament, you know that priests can only come from one tribe who come from Abraham's great, great grandson, Levi. Those are the only people who can be priests. And yet here is Abraham placing himself under the spiritual authority and therefore also placing his grandson and great-grandson and all of the priests who come after him under this man's spiritual authority because Abraham is blessed by him. That's a sign of spiritual authority. And he pays tithe to him. That's how he worships. Which means that there must be a priesthood which comes before and is superior to the priesthood of Levi. What? Think about kings. Kings come like much, much, much later. Again, from Abraham's great, 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 times 14, 14 generations we're told in Matthew. Great grandson. And the the height of this kingship is King David. No one is appointed as a king before David. Well, there is Saul, but no one's appointed before Saul, except someone is. Generations before, hundreds of years before. Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. See, this is a figure who's meant to trip us up. He's meant, we're meant to be walking through the Old Testament. We kind of know the story. We get the idea. There's the priest, there's the kings. And then suddenly we're caught by Melchizedek and we're like, oh my goodness me, what is going on? That's the idea here. And he's designed to trip us up because he's a type of something that comes much later. Because Melchizedek testifies to this, that there is a, a priesthood which is higher than Levi. There's a king of righteousness who reigns before David and bread and wine is the meal of his presence. Church, who does he point to? It's the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. If you were to shine a light backwards from the New Testament into the Old, you would see the shadow of Christ cast in the characters. They're not the full form, but they are promises and figures of the one who is. That's typology. So not only does it teach us something about the king that is, not only does it teach us about those characters, but it tells us something about the king who is coming. So let's unpack those three points. A priesthood greater than the Levites, a king of righteousness and peace, and a promised meal of his presence. So a priesthood greater than the Levites. Now, the reason that this is extraordinary is because if there is a 
priesthood who ministers under one covenant and then there is another priesthood that there is greater than them, that means that there's a greater covenant, okay? So let's have a look at the old and the new covenant. The old covenant is the Mos- what we call the Mosaic law. It's the, m- the law given through Moses. And if you have tried to do Bible in a year and got stuck at Leviticus, you know exactly what the Mosaic law is. <laughs> And there are priests who are there to offer sacrifices for when those laws are broken. But here's the thing. Those sacrifices don't remove the sin of breaking that law. Those sacrifices testify that the people had sinned and they testified that God was merciful And they testified that that was the only way that people were going to be able to approach God. But they didn't remove the sin. They made all of Abraham's subsequent family clean enough to be God's people on earth, but not clean enough to be God's family in heaven. But here's the thing. There's a greater priesthood. And there's a greater covenant. Melchizedek goes pretty much unmentioned until we get to the Hebrew, until we get to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, where the author says this: Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And this is what the how he describes the new covenant. Day after day, he's describing the old to start with. He says, in the old covenant, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, this priest after the order of Melchizedek, had offered for one time, for all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since then, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The old covenant, multiple sacrifices, never removing sin. The new covenant, one sacrifice, which deals with sin once and for all so that we can approach the presence of God. And here's the thing. The greater came before the lesser. And that's what Melchizedek testifies to. Before we move on, I just want to address the fact that um, I think that we sometimes engage with God in an old covenant way. We think we're forgiven enough to keep us going, but not fully. We relive those things that we've done wrong, even though we've, we've said sorry to God for them for a, th- a thousand times. We begin to wonder whether our poor health or our broken relationships or our financial struggles are somehow a punishment from God. We look around at church and we think, yeah, I'm sure everyone else is forgiven here, but deep down, I kind of suspect that I, I might not be. We think that we are forgiven enough to be servants of God, but not enough to be children of God. 
That's the old covenant way of thinking. But what I want us to see this morning is that it's always been God's plan to, offer, to have a perfect priest who would offer a perfect sacrifice so that we could know perfect forgiveness. The cross was not God's plan B when the old covenant failed. The cross is the eternal purpose of God to win for himself dearly loved children in his heavenly family. And this congregation, as every congregation is, an outpost of that heavenly eternity, designed by God before time and promised at Melchizedek, a greater priest who came before the law. Secondly, we're told that we see in this that Jesus is the true king of peace and righteousness. Now, the author of Hebrews goes into great depth about this. If you want to go deeper into this stuff, just read Hebrews. It's absolutely amazing. Chapter 7 onwards, just go to town. You will not regret it, I promise. Um, but we're told that Melchizedek means king of righteousness and king of Salem means king of peace. In other words, Melchizedek is awaiting a king of righteousness and peace. Now, I don't know if you've read much of the Old Testament kings, but if you have, you will know that righteousness and peace are not the two words that I would reach for to describe them. If you've read much of the Old Testament kings, you'll know that they don't live in that way at all. In fact, it makes them rather hard to read. We read the Old Testament kings all wrong. We tend to assume that their good actions are nice, you know, just nice things that they did. Isn't it nice? David wrote all those pretty poems. <laughs> it's so nice. And then we assume that their bad actions are somehow things that God condones, that God allows, that God, that God says is okay. And that makes reading the Old Testament really hard if we're thinking in that way. But here's the thing, that the, old, the lives of the Old Testament kings are not meant to communicate God's moral standard, that's in the law. They're meant to point to the need for a true king of peace and righteousness. Take David and Bathsheba. In this story, David sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. King David sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. And he says, I must have her. So he has her husband killed and then he sexually manipulates her. You see, that is a story that does not communicate that God thinks that's okay. It's a story that testifies to the fact that we are awaiting a true king who would not just not murder us, but who would die in our place, who would not just not sexually manipulate women, but that who would live with a perfect chastity, a perfect holiness towards women. We're awaiting a true and better king. When we read about the story of Ahab in 1 Kings 21, if you don't know it, Ahab sees a vineyard that he wants, owned by a guy called Naboth, and he says, hey, I want that vineyard. And Naboth said, you really can't have it. I, this is my inheritance. And uh, Ahab, through a series of events, um, has Naboth killed and then takes his inheritance. When we read that, we're reminded of a true king that would come after Ahab, who would give up his eternal inheritance in heaven, step down to earth so that he could take us back with him to share in it. 
When we read the old kings, we read that they disregard the law. And that teaches us to long for a new king who will perfectly follow the law. And the same is true of the good deeds. David's words of worship are not just nice words. They point to the king who will worship God perfectly in spirit and in truth. Solomon's wisdom is not just a nice thing that he says. It points to the true king who will speak words of life. And we've got them here today. It's called the Bible. Josiah renewing the covenant is not just a, a nice thing that he does one day. It reminds us that there is a true king who will make a new covenant in his own blood. And so if you are here today and you are finding the Old Testament hard to read, particularly Old Testament kings, please keep reading. Allow yourself to be deeply uncomfortable with the idea of living under any king other than Jesus. That's what they're there for. Finally then, the Eucharist is the meal of the priest king's office. What on the earth does that mean? Melchizedek, back in Genesis 14, he brings out a meal of bread and wine. And this foreshadows the fact that there is a greater priest and a greater king, as we've just seen, who will too bring out a meal of bread and wine. And I just want to touch on this for a moment because I think we might have got communion quite far wrong. I think that we tend to assume sometimes in, in churches like ours, uh, where you know, we love to sing and dance and pray and shout out and all the rest of it, we tend to think sometimes that the early church sat around having nice meals together and then somewhere in the last 2,000 years, somebody decided to turn it into a religious ritual. It's probably the Roman Catholic Church. Let's just blame them for everything. And then now we've got to come here and form orderly cues and it's a bit weird and there's a table and only certain people are able to do it and it's all a bit odd. We've turned it into a religious ritual. What I want us to see is that eating a meal of bread and wine is the promise of the presence of the priest king. When we come and receive communion, it's not primarily something that we are doing. It's primarily an act of God making himself known in our lives so that we would be drawn into the presence of the priest king. That's the pattern of scripture. And communion, this so-called religious meal, this ritual has been a ritual meal throughout all of the Old Testament. The Passover was a ritual. Melchizedek's bread and wine was a ritual and the early church received this ritual. Ritual. Yes, they ate together in each other's homes with glad and sincere hearts. But what were they doing? They were breaking bread because they were awaiting, they were receiving the promise of the presence of the priest king. So I invite you, next time you receive communion, don't just think that this is kind of an awkward thing that we have to do because we're an Anglican church. You are entering into the presence of your priest king. 
You're entering into the presence of your priest. Bring before him that situation at work where it just seems like there's no way through. Bring before him the the hurt that you're experiencing in your family. Bring before him the betrayal of someone you thought you could trust. He's your priest interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. He's your king. Bring before him your your fear of proclaiming the truth on campus, knowing that it will be shut down. Bring before him that disease for which there isn't a medical cure. Bring before him that painful date that comes around each year and it stings and it hurts. You're in the presence of your priest king. Be ready for his priestly ministry and to obey his kingly rule. And once you see Jesus like this in Genesis 14, you see that he's all over the place like this. Jesus is the true and better Adam through whom God is giving a new humanity. He's the true and better Abel, sacrificed by his brothers because of righteousness. He's the true and better Isaac, sacrificed on the mountain. He's the true and better Joseph, sold into slavery to redeem his brothers. He's the true and better Jonah, who lay in the deep for three days only to rise again. He's the true and better Abigail, who offers atonement for the sin of her spouse. He's the true and better Esther, who made his home with violent men to save his people people. Are we just making it up? Is Jesus not really in the Old Testament? Allow me to put that question to bed once and for all. Jesus is patterned throughout the scriptures. Now when we read the Bible this way, when we learn to read the scriptures typologically, it teaches us to read our lives typologically. Okay? Now I can see some of you are smiling at the word typologically again, or type, or typology. Just go with me on this one. Here's the thing if the Old Testament characters weren't the main character in their story, but they were meant to bear the figure of Christ, the same is true of us. We are not the main character in our own story. We too are called to be like little coins that point to the figure of Christ so that people meet him face to face and know what he looks like. In your work, for example, you are called to bear the figure of Christ. If you're a health worker, you're called to bear the figure of Christ through healing. If you're a parent, you're called to bear the figure of Christ through gentle instruction. If you're a student, you're called to bear the figure of Christ through humility. If you're in construction, you're called to bear the figure of Christ by building something that lasts. If you're in retail, you're called to bear the figure of Christ as you mediate between need and fulfilment of that need. But just like the Old Testament kings, you are both a likeness and an insufficiency, and it's meant to be that way. Health workers, you heal like Jesus, but the only one who can bring freedom from death is Jesus himself. If you work in retail, you mediate between need and fulfillment but in so doing you testify to the fact that there's only one who can meet our deepest needs if you're a student you model humility like Jesus but in so doing you testify that there is only one who would be so humble that he would go to the cross to die to save the world reading the bible typologically leads us to read our own lives typologically. You bear the figure of Christ where you work, where you live, where you shop with your family. You bear the figure of Christ. 
Finally then, what I want us to see is this, that if all of this is true, we are living in the age of the fulfilment of the promise. I want us to see the enormity of the time that we're living in because it is so easy to just think, oh well, it's just 2023, it happens, there's a recession, there's a cost of living crisis, there's a war, there's this, that and the other. And we get drawn into the humdrum stuff that's real, very real, felt by many of us. But sometimes we're looking down at that stuff rather than up at this truth that we are living in the age of the fulfilment of the promise, the final revelation in the pattern and the fullness of Christ's presence. St. Paul writing to the Corinthians would say this, we are, those living, uh, we are those on whom the culmination of the ages has come. We are living in a period of history like no other. All of, all of time has been leading up to Jesus Christ walking on earth, perfectly revealing God to us. And all of time is now waiting his return. And this brief chink of light, like when you open the door in the middle of the night and there's just a little shaft of light that shines through onto the landing, that is the time that we're living in now. We are living in the age of the fulfilment of the promise. We are those with the privilege of seeing the final figure that all of the other figures had been pointing to, the final type in the pattern. We see years of fulfilment in Jesus. When we pray for one another, we are participating in the promise of Joel 600 years earlier that God will pour out his spirit on all people. When we receive communion, we're receiving the full meal that Melchizedek held out but a pale imitation of to Abraham. When we are baptised, we are brought into the covenant that the whole Levitical priesthood was meant to show us our need for. We are living in the age of fulfilment. The writer of Hebrews draws to the end of his letter like this. All the great heroes of scripture were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God planned something better for us so that only with us would they be made perfect. Church, it is impossible to overstate the enormity of the privilege that we have as God's holy people gathered here in the new covenant who have met Christ for ourselves. He's the one that all of time has, has been leading up to. He's the one on whom all of time pivots. And you are meeting him this morning. Let's stand together.